future human visionaries. What tomorrow knows today. Produced in association with the V&A. Welcome to Visionaries, a podcast dedicated to futurological thinkers. We seek out people who are reimagining innovation in their field and ask them to apply their intelligence to emerging trends. Keep listening to hear the evolving story of their ideas. Mary Ryan is Professor of Material Science and Nanotechnology at Imperial College London. Her work focuses on the use of nanotechnology within electrochemistry, exploring how tiny nanomaterials can strengthen metals. She describes how nanotechnology could change everything. So nanotechnology really means the ability to visualise and to manipulate materials at a length scale that's pretty much unprecedented. At the atomic length scale, we can see things and we can move them around. And so nanotechnology is often described as the design, the fabrication, the application of nanomaterials. So this is the, this is the state of the art, and the state of the art is, in terms of manipulating atoms, it, it happens at IBM in Zurich. And they very recently released this video of the, the world's smallest movie, and it's called A Boy and His Atom. And the way they did this, they developed a technology which they invented in 1986, for which they got the Nobel Prize a couple of years later, called the scanning tumbling microscope. And using that, they can manipulate individual atoms on a surface. So this is a single atom. You can see a single atom being moved around. And this is essentially just a stop motion video. It's like a morph film where they have taken a series of pictures where they've moved individual atoms around to make this kind of a structure, this kind of a video, which is almost unbelievable. Well, this is a single atom that's being used as a ball. Now, IBM are interested in this in the context of data storage. They're interested in computers. They want to know what's the limit of us being able to read and write and manipulate structures. Currently, it takes about a million atoms to store a byte of data. Can you do that with smaller scale structures? You can, by many, many orders of magnitude, in increase the data density in your structures. Um, IBM wants us to think about it. Nanotechnology as a concept, or this concept of moving atoms and assembling things, was really first um, proposed by Richard Feynman in his famous Room at the Bottom speech. And in that, he talked about billion tiny factories making models of each other, um, effectively self-replicating, self-making machines assembled bottom-up, so starting with the atom and up. All our current technologies really are top-down. If we want to make things small, we cut big things up. Right? Nanotechnology means building up from the atomic scale. And why aren't we doing this yet? Well, what Feynman said was the reason we don't do it is because we're all too big. We can't conceptualize, we can't operate at these length scales. And this idea of Feynman's was, was taken on and taken forward by, by many um, great physicists in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and proposed a field which was, became known as molecular nanotechnology. So this idea that you can make machines, you can program machines to build up atom by atom, and then they can build more machines. And this requires what we call atomically precise manufacturing. That's the ideal, the goal of nanotechnology. And that is described often as the next industrial revolution, the benefits and risks of which we probably can't imagine. It's a disruptive technology. It has the potential to completely change our landscape, our environment, economically, socially, and militarily. If you can imagine having a machine that can self-replicate, build 100, 1,000, 10,000 of itself, that completely changes the way you think about commerce and production and, and weaponry. How, quite how disruptive that will be. So this 
we already have very, very cheap technology. This is, a, this is talking about conventional materials and the cost of a transistor. So in the late 60s, a transistor on a circuit board would have cost you a dollar. 30 years later, a single transistor on a circuit board would have cost you 100 nano dollars. So the same as the cost of a single grain of salt, a single transistor on a circuit board, less than it costs to produce a single character in a printed newspaper. Okay, so we're now talking about something that completely obliterates those kind of economics. All right, it's something that would change our entire manufacturing and economic landscape. All right, we can't imagine having anything so cheap and so abundant and so flexible. Um, and in fact, we probably haven't imagined it close enough. We certainly haven't planned how disruptive that those kind of economic and industrial changes would be in our society. And we're in a position now where we have lots of available passive nanomaterials that can impact hugely, and potentially hugely, lots of immediate problems. Okay, so you can pick a global challenge. Everybody will have their own one, the top three probably. Energy supply and generation. Nanoparticles can make solar cells more efficient. Climate change, we can use them for carbon capture. Pollution remediation, nanomaterials can filter out pollutants. Security, we can use it to check and censor in different environments. So in part, the scientific community has been distracted quite rightly by the addressing some immediate problems that our current technology can take and actually instead of moving forward to the big step change, um, funding also for nanomaterials directs most of the sciences towards these immediate problems. So that's where in some ways we're constrained to work. So I'm just going to take one of those global challenges to give you an idea of the way nanotechnology is being developed. Um, so I'm about healthcare. So one example is Actually, by using nanomaterials in sensing, we can have much, much more sensitive um, detections. And if you have more sensitive detection, that means instead of waiting for a tumor to grow to the size of a centimeter in your body to be able to assay the biomarkers when you've got an incipient tumor, you're so much more sensitive to a lower level of those proteins, say. You can have targeted drug delivery where you have very specific molecules delivered to a very specific site in the body and, tra and trained in, say, a liposome that could contain a drug. It could contain a DNA sequence. So this detection, this personalized delivery can improve um, clinical outcomes by using nanotechnology. And of course, if we think about yesterday, then that will reduce our national insurance plan for them. Um, but for our new national health service that was described. The other thing, this, this, this actually was just released, this um, universal vaccination was given up yesterday at the TED conference, which is the technology um, advances, and it's a nano patch. And what that is, is it's a, a patch that's just hundreds and hundreds of nano needles, uh, the tips of which have got crystallized vaccine, dry vaccine, that you just put on your arm and you're vaccinated. Why is that important? Well, what it means is you can take this type of vaccination approach to the third world where you don't need sterile conditions. You've got a sterilized pack, you open it, you apply it. You don't need to store liquid vaccines in the fridge. It's stable at room temperature for a year. So using this kind of technology, um, which is actually very simple, just making things small and controlling things in a specific way can already have a huge impact. I just want to talk just for very quickly about perceptions of nanotechnology. and. We're a little bit schizophrenic about our approach to technology. Um, nanomaterials are either going to save the planet or they're going to destroy the planet, pollute everything and kill us. And that's not even withstanding thoughts about the grey goo, out of control self-replication and all the um, ethics associated with that. Just the fact that nanomaterials are now in our environment, what are they doing? And so we, we, we're faced with lots of them. Um, 
hyperbolic headlines about the danger of nanomaterials. The nanoparticles have the power to address disease states, but also the power to give you toxic response. And how we present nanotechnology and how we present these types of imagery actually can not only change perceptions, but can, um, can affect the way that the public engage with, with the science. Sandra Kemp of the VNA asked if the unchecked development of nanotechnology should be regulated. Responsible development has become kind of a buzzword in within nanotechnology, and it's but it's largely a very limited definition. So when you talk about responsible development, that means development that won't be polluting, that won't lead to release of nanomaterials into the atmosphere or the groundwater, that you have taken care about the toxic response. It doesn't contain within that any of the kind of bigger pictures of responsibility in terms of you know, economic, political, um, military impact of technology. So regulation really, as it stands, is framed around safety. Right. right. And, and, and largely health and safety in the environmental context. Should it be regulated in a bigger sense? I would say probably yes, but I don't know who I would trust to do the regulation. Okay. So I think it needs to be there needs to be a much better discussion about the impact, the potent, these potential impact. I don't think there is a natural body that could automatically that ex existence that could formulate those kind of regulations. I think the discussion has not been had. I think scientists need to take more responsibility in engaging in these discussions. One of the problems with nanotechnology I alluded to is it's very nebulous. There's not really a coherent community of people who who, who feel like they're they're together. Feel like we're all lots of us are working in different fields. There are subsets of nanotechnology, but on mass. It doesn't exist, I think, properly as a community like atmospheric physics, say, or, or even climate change scientists, which is also in very interdisciplinary, but with a very narrow focus of its application. Um, I think that, I mean, there are some attempts. I mean, in you know, the Foresight Commission, the Royal Society have tried to develop these kind of, and open these kind of discussions. But I think we've got a long way to go, and I think more scientists need to be more engaged with those responsibilities. But when the popular understanding of nanotech vacillates between fear and optimism, how should this scientific field be explained to the public? I think one of, one of the kind of things we've all skirted around in terms of banning of stem cell research, fear of self-replicating machines, understanding and creation of consciousness, is that there is a large religious impact and religious lobby that impacts on what science you're allowed to do and how policymakers work in terms of there being certain, if you like, taboo subjects that we're not supposed to talk about or, or, or activists are not supposed to engage in. I think we need to, we need to be addressing that head-on and talking about it in the context of that language actually because because that is it may be not overtly but i think it is affecting the political agenda and, and affecting how and what type of science is, is studied and how it's portrayed it's part about education and educating people not just to be passive consumers of the headline but to think beyond it I think we are losing that, and I think that comes back partly as well to your point about science for the sake of science and understanding what science is about and what developments are about. Um, I think as scientists we need to end engage in more measured debate. I think it's, you know, we're in a, as scientists we're in a very competitive field, we're competing for funding, we're competing for students. and. The way that you get more funding and more students is by having very high-profile projects. And so there's a natural tendency for us all to exaggerate 
the benefits of something that you might have made or the risks of something that you might be studying that might be toxic. So we have to, I think, self-police as a, as a community to try and take some of the hyperbole out of how we communicate and to try and communicate on a level that um, people are able to en engage with. So. You know, just like you said, nanoparticles are invisible. How do you make that connection to people who don't have, you know, a, a, an electron microscope or scanning tunnel microscope? How do you explain to them about those length scales? Should the development of nanotechnology be dictated by private enterprise? I think a lot of scientific freedom is lost. I think um, there's less opportunity for being creative. So industry or private funding tends to have very fixed deadlines with presumed deliverables. So it's it's almost like we know what we want to get out of this. Um, here's a pathway to get there. You've got X amount of time and Y amount of money. And so it, it, it leaves less space and less scope for just, you know, experimenting, trying novel things, doing out-of-the-box experiments that might actually give you a big step change. Yeah. So graphene, you know, is the new wonder material. Andre Game made that with a piece of graphite and a piece of sellotape. Right? He would never have got industry funding to discover a new material. And he certainly wouldn't have got it if he said he was going to use sellotape. Right? But he went and, you know, he was just experimenting. He had space and time to play if you like, because that's what scientists really like to do. They like to go in the lab and play. And we're losing that time because we're always put onto this. What are you going to get within the next five years? How is it going to benefit the society? What is going to be the economic impact? And so I think, I think it's very dangerous. I don't think you can manage. History tells us you cannot manage scientific research. You have to have scope for free thinking. This recording took place at an event convened by the V&A with support from Z33, The Welcome Collection, and the Arts and Humanities Research Council. This podcast was produced by Future Human in Dalston, London. For more episodes of the Future Human podcast, visit iTunes or soundcloud.com.